You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett. And you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is a man who has coached at the elite level across three sports, Australian rules football, cycling, and rugby union. His name is Neil Craig. Neil Craig played 319 games of Australian rules football for Norwood, Sturt and North Adelaide in the South Australian Football League before becoming Norwood's coach in 1991. He then joined the Adelaide Crows in 1997 as an assistant coach, taking a short break from that role to help the Australian Olympic cycling team prepare for the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games as their sports science coordinator. He was then appointed head coach of Adelaide Football Club in 2004, taking the team to five successive finals campaigns and a minor premiership. He went on to work for six years as a director of coaching at Melbourne, Essendon and Carlton in the Australian Football League. Since 2017, he has been high performance manager for the England Rugby Union team, working with head coach Eddie Jones. The discussion with Neil is a masterclass in coaching and leadership. Neil has been involved with both successful and failing cultures, and in this discussion, he talks about both. While he has a long and storied career, he is also an eternal student, and you will hear him talk about being uncomfortable with being comfortable, and how this drives a thirst for learning with great coaches. 
He talks about how as soon as your behaviour influences someone else, you are exhibiting leadership. And so it is fundamental for any member of a team to be aware and conscious of the impact of their behaviour. How the best coaches understand that if you don't take risks, you end up being an imitator, and being an imitator is not a path to success. How resilience is also important when learning to handle success, and how without resilience, you become inconsistent. And towards the end, he shares some great advice on dealing with environments that are ethically challenged, and this was the part of the discussion that resonated with me most. I hope you enjoy it as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Mr. Neil Craig, good uh, good afternoon to you and welcome to our podcast. Pleasure to be here, Paul, and I uh, thank you for asking me and, and showing an interest. Neil, can I just start off with a really easy one? Can you tell us a little bit about where you are today and uh, what you've been up to? So I reside in Melbourne. Uh, I have been doing some consultancy work with uh, the English national rugby team, coached by an, another Australian, Eddie Jones. Uh, which has been fantastic for me in terms of my own professional development and refreshing the way I think and challenging the way I think. So that's, that's been really good and we can talk about that. But uh, currently I, I reside in Melbourne and when I'm back, when I'm back in Australia, not working with the English rugby team, I, I just, I like to keep my hand in with the AFL, which is sort of my background in terms of uh, being a participant, a player, and also um, from the coaching and the, and the strength and conditioning side of things. But at the moment, you're a bit stifled. You're a bit limited to, uh, to Zoom calls and, and podcasts and whatever. Uh, but that's fine because it gives you plenty of time to uh, to read and and uh, use it as a chance to, as I said, to refresh and um, and get ready to go again. Well, we're very lucky to have you today. Um, I guess we should thank the lockdown in some ways to, for making your time available. But Neil, I'd like to start by asking a question about your history actually, because you've worked with some great coaches, Charlie Walsh in cycling, Eddie Jones in rugby and Malcolm Blight in Australian rules football. What do you think these great coaches do differently? Well, they are different, Paul. There's no doubt about it. Um, Cause they're outliers. Uh, and I'd, I'd throw in there Rick Charlesworth as well. I think who you've, who you've spoken to. So they're outliers in, well, first and foremost, they clearly understand that, in the, in the role that they have, which is uh, a head coach, senior coach, that it's a classical leadership role. And so they've got a really clear picture about what that looks like in terms of what I call elite leadership. And over the, my journey, you occasionally, you, often you see coaches when they first start out in the, in the role of a head coach, that they still basically act as an assistant coach. And so they, they, they still haven't got a, a grasp or a clear picture in their head about what leadership is. So those guys are outliers in that area, um, really clear about what that looks like. So they create an environment where they don't take their hands off the wheel by any stretch of the imagination, but they create an environment where uh, they trust people. They give a, a reasonable amount of autonomy you know, to, to other coaches and support staff. They create an environment which is about continuous learning and that dovetails into a whole range of different areas, you know, um, being adverse ready because that's an opportunity to learn if you're in the right mindset, refreshing the way you think, getting people into your environment from other sports so they have a humility about them. It's, it's really interesting, Paul, the older you get, the more you realise you don't know 
and the more you want to know, um, and therefore you you tend to open yourself up more and invite people in because you you um, you become really curious. And these guys are curious. This uh, always wanting to do things better. Is there a better way of doing it? Uh, a bit of a fear of uh, missing out on what the next best thing is, so they can put that into their program. They bring a vision, and they're the keeper of the vision, which is really important because we all drift as human beings, and uh, every now and again they have a real feel of when to align, when to realign individuals or groups of people back to the vision they're on. So they have a they have this picture in their head about where they're going, what that looks like. But just as importantly, this this roadmap of how to get there, what and what's important to get there, and how will we know that we're getting there? Now that sounds easy on this sort of uh, dialogue, you know, it runs off the tongue pretty easily. But when you're in the chair uh, and you've got to know all that stuff, otherwise you don't have a you, you don't have a successful program. It's a really it's a difficult it's a difficult uh, position to be in as a head coach, senior coach at the elite level. It's complicated. It's complex. So you better be careful who you put in the chair, you know, if you're involved in selection of people because it's, uh, if you get it wrong, it can be disastrous. Neil, you're very generous with your time when it comes to helping other coaches. You often act as a mentor for, for younger coaches, especially these days. What are some of the biggest themes that, that younger coaches talk to you about in your role as a mentor? Yeah, well, it's completely different to what Annette Jones will talk to me about, Paul. You know, and part of my role with uh, with England rugby, which has been really interesting, because Eddie's a highly experienced coach. I mean, he's coached in four World Cups now, uh, highly successful on the international stage. He's uh, he now encourages people to be around him who can be critical friend. You know, to give him feedback on his performance, and basically to better tell him the way it is. Because when you when you sit in the chair of a CEO or a head coach, you know, um, of a big organisation, often you're the last person to get feedback if you get it at all. And sometimes those people don't even want it. So to have um, two or three people around you who are who you have the trust in to better tell of the way it is um, is is really important to get that feedback for the head coach. And also, you're, you're a bit of a translator. Often what the senior coach is thinking and the picture in his head and the standards and, uh, and the way he wants things done can sometimes get lost with other people. So your capacity to be able to take the way the head coach is thinking and, and maybe go and talk to people and help translate that to get the same picture in their head is really important as well. So that's sort of um, a, a role that I would play with Eddie, uh, one of the roles I'd play with Eddie. And sometimes you're just a listener, just sit and listen, you know, because, and having been a, a head coach uh, in, my, in my previous life, Paul, you have this, you have a degree of empathy for the job, uh, which I think is important for the role I play. And sometimes just to be able to sit and listen, not necessarily make any comments, but so that Eddie can download or share a thought or share how he's feeling at the time. Because, uh, you know, people think that these coaches, they get into these roles that they're bulletproof, that they don't have self-doubt, that they don't get anxious, they don't have fears. Well, it's, they do. They actually do. Um, and it's part of the job. But they have a capacity to, uh, to still function under those sort of pressures. 
Um, but the capacity just to uh, sit and download, I think, can be very um, therapeutic and, and great for the well-being of a coach. Wish I'd done it when I was coaching as a head coach. I wish I'd done it. In actual fact, if I ever became a head coach again, probably the first appointment I would make would be someone who could actually fulfill that role for me because I see it such as being so important. Younger coaches, they just want to talk about the technical side of the game, you know. So they're, they're still just learning the caper when they get in there. So it's it's more about you – know, it's a lot more questions for them. I find it's, it's more questions for them, um, whereas you know, Eddie will ask me more questions, you know. So it's, it, it's sort of a, a role reversal to a certain extent. But the, the, the role of the mentor now – I think in, in high performance coaching is uh, is crucial because of uh, it's such a complicated and complex role to play. So uh, we all need help, and uh, and it's the older coaches have been around for a while and who are happy to be vulnerable and have this humility. Say, uh, yeah, come in here. As I said, they still control the situation. They're still in charge, and they accept that responsibility. Uh, but they just want a bit of balance in their thinking. Neil, if you had a group of people in front of you who were, were, were thinking of becoming coaches in the future and not just assistant coaches, thinking of becoming head coaches, what would you advise them to be the top skills or competencies that they would need to develop? I think the important thing, Paul, is they've got to, they've got to understand themselves. They've actually got to know why they coach. And that's really important because... Where that gets really tested is in when it gets difficult, when the, when the environment gets difficult. You know, the level that we're talking about in terms of high-performance coaches and the sports, I mean, English rugby, huge interest in the world. I mean, I didn't, know how, I didn't know how popular rugby was until I went over there to do some work. And so the scrutiny of the job uh, and the results. So, you know, it's all of a sudden, I mean, you work for a, a big, big company, but I don't get to read about your performance on the back page of the Times, you know, whereas I do about Eddie Jones. And so it adds another layer to your capacity to, you know, to better perform your role and to be clear thinking because there's, um, there's a justification. You have to justify uh, about why you do things. And sometimes that's, you know, the role of the media, you know, is, uh, is really interesting. It's diverting from your, your question a bit, but in a lot of ways, the media keeps you accountable. Because I'll ask the question, well, why did you do that? Or why is your team not performing? Or why is uh, this individual player being allowed to do what he's doing? And this is where, unless you know yourself as a coach and, you know, the common term now being, you know, unless you have a, a really clear philosophy, you'll get caught out really quickly. You'll become, you'll be, you'll be seen as very wishy-washy because you haven't thought things through. So the capacity to think about, your role in the media, uh, how you're going to, how you're going to, uh, uh, your role about feedback. Do you accept it? Do you give it? Um, empowerment, uh, your relationship with management, your relationship with uh, the team. How close do you get to the team? How close do you get to the individuals? Your relationship about your, your thinking about leadership. So you got to, so you got to have a big, really clear picture on all this. Doesn't mean you can't change your thinking, but if you haven't thought about it and have got uh, a lot of it sort of embedded in your thinking and a clear picture, uh, you can get derailed really, really quickly. Um, and of course, being in a leadership role, uh, that's that's disastrous for the environment. 
so I don't know if that's answered your, your, your question there, but so know yourself, know why you want to coach. You know, when I first started being a head coach, it was really, when I reflect on it now, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was a lot of it was about ego. You know, look at me. I'm, I'm now, um, you know, I'm the, I'm the head coach of the Adelaide Football Club. And yet when I finished, it was more about my capacity to enable people to be their best, which is nearly a complete flip, you know, about uh, why I was coaching and, and why I now want to work with uh, the English rugby team and Eddie Jones and the players there. It's more about what you can do for people is where you get your satisfaction from as distinct when I first started. And so, you know, the way I think about coaching now is completely different than when I first started, you know, as a head coach, thank God. Um, and it's, and sometimes it's when you, when I reflect on that, you sort of say, well, how do I get the job? <laughs> Cause maybe it's sort of, I'm, I'm in this position where maybe I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm maybe not suited for. So, you know, just to, uh, to know yourself, to know why you coach and then to think, you know, one of the things that um, a coach that you've spoken to, Rick Charlesworth, you know, I've spent some time with Rick and that when I, when I, when I leave his environment, like I, I know that I enjoy it, it's tough, it's uncomfortable because he makes me think. Like he questions you all the time about why. why. Why do you think that way? What's your justification? What would you do in this situation? And so, um, and an old coach when I was playing once told me, he said, are, are you thinking about what you're doing? And so this capacity to think is, is really important, to think things through, about a debate, about a question, to be open to uh, different suggestions is, is really important. There's a lot in that, and you it certainly don't get taught that any of any of the coaching courses that you go to. Your role with English rugby these days also involves the development of player leadership. Can you talk a little bit about the areas that you've focused on in this, this program? Yeah, well... It's interesting the leadership question, Paul. It's um, you know, it can be. Uh, I mean, we all lead. I mean, without getting too, too in depth about um, the definitions of it. I mean, as soon as you influence someone, for me, you're leading. Okay, so you can be a player in the team and have, um, you know, and your behaviour might be quite poor, and and certainly not. Um, not related to good performance, but if you're, and that might be okay for you, you might say, well, that's, you know, it's just the way I am. And if I don't get selected, that's okay. But as soon as your behavior influences someone else, uh, you're, you're exhibiting a leadership. Okay. Because you're influencing that, that other teammate. And so, um, I'm not saying that leadership is good, but it's still leading. It's still leading. So the capacity to influence is, is, is where I sort of go with, with leadership. So that's first and foremost, and I often talk to the playing group, and in particular, I work with the leadership group of the England rugby team, um, even though I do have, obviously, dialogue with all players, but those guys in particular. We talk a lot about your capacity. Uh, are you, can you lead yourself first? First and foremost, can you lead yourself? So what do I mean by that? Um, leading yourself is, um, do you show up on time for training? Are you first there? Do you do extra work afterwards? Uh, do you have an involvement in team meetings? Do you wear the right um, clothing? Are you respectful for, to staff? So these are all things about what are you doing? Because unless you do that, do you live? Are you a role model for the values of the English team? Um, you know, if we had to pick people who, who really role model those values, would you be in the top five or six? 
Because if you can't lead yourself, when it comes to trying to lead other people, you've got no hope. You have got no hope whatsoever. So first, first and foremost, if you, uh, it's about your capacity to lead yourself if you want to be, if you want to be considered a leader. And, you don't need, and that's, I know we haven't even mentioned the title of captaincy or, or leadership group. So that's, that's one level of leadership is your capacity to lead yourself first and foremost. The extension of that, of course, is uh, then just doing that, Paul, just doing that by itself will influence other teammates because they'll look at you and say, well, Paul's doing that really well. Gee, he trains hard. He, he gets to training a bit early and he does extra work after training. I might jump in with him. So all of a sudden I've influenced that person, maybe not even, even without talking to the person. The extension of it, though, uh, on a bigger picture is you're then your capacity to, to lead other people or influence other people. Um, now, clearly that can be on-field and off-field. Um, the ultimate of all of this, for me, is the picture I have in my head. The ultimate test is how does all that look under the pressure of competition? That's the ultimate. And I'll, and I'll guarantee you it'll be the same in your job. Okay? If you've got a leadership role in your job, and, I'm, and you have, yeah, I would... My, my, my judgment of you at the end would be how do you actually operate though when you're really under the heat? That's, that's how I'm going to judge you. Not when sales are good and, you know, just rolling in and for whatever reason, because we're going to, that's, I mean, it's important, but, and it's, it's, you know, when you're winning and, and that's, that's easy. It's when you, uh, you've had some adversity or things not quite going the way that you want them to go, or you've made a poor mistake or you've lost momentum in a game or there's been some bad injuries how do you now handle the situation on yourself, your own actual behavior? And then how do you actually conduct yourself with your teammates and help them get through the situation? So there's a lot in that. Okay. And it's, uh, it's not, it's not for the, uh, it's not for the timid. Once you start talking about, you know, team leadership and, and accepting those sort of roles. Um, so we spend a lot of time um, challenging and rewarding, you know, when we see when it's when it's a good time to reward uh, the guys in the leadership group for the work they do. Uh, we reward that, and we're also in a capacity because of the relationships that we have. Uh, we need to challenge them too when the performance is not not at a level with with education, because these um, it's a lot of it is about just you got to experience it, you debrief it. Can, how do we do it? Get, do it better. Uh, and the next time that we, we get that experience, can we do it better? Um, you, know, you don't go looking for adversity because it will find you. you don't have, in, a, in elite sport, it will find you. You don't have to go looking for it. So the time will come again when you will get another opportunity and we need to do it better. And that's, that's your learning environment, you see. That's where the learning environment becomes. So don't, uh, you don't back off in terms of adversity. In actual fact, you actually clap your hands and say, okay, here it is. Beautiful. Here's another opportunity. Thank God for that. And let's see how we handle that. Now, that's, that's an elite learning environment because you value the lessons and you, uh, you value the lessons that you're going to learn and the skill set you're going to develop by being challenged in, in a whole range of different areas. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'd like to, to explore adversity a bit with you because and, and how it links to learning and culture, actually, because you've been involved with uh, a very, very successful culture. Um, in English rugby, it's it's talked about openly as being high performing. But you've also been called in to help with some clubs that are going through adversity and deep cultural issues. Most noticeably, Essendon Football Club. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what are the building blocks? I, I don't want to get into the whole uh, issue of you know what happened to lead lead to to the decay of of culture or, or performance or behaviours. But I'd like to rather focus on what are the building blocks for an elite high performance culture? What's got to be in place? Well, a quick layman's definition of culture is uh, I could come into your company tomorrow and I reckon if I spent a week there, I could tell you what the culture is um, without even talking to anyone, just by observation uh, and listening. Because I'd better at the end of that week no, not, not in every different situation, but I'd be at the end of that week, sit down and say to you, this is the way you do things around here. And to me, that's your culture. It's, it's what you actually do. It's your behaviours that you exhibit. So I'd be able to tell you the way you uh, communicate with people in a meeting. Um, hopefully the, in that week there would be some adversity. So I'd be able to actually say to you, this is how you handle adversity. Uh, this is how you handle errors. This is how, this is how you reward people. This is how you handle people that have... Um, maybe struggling with the environment. Um, this is how you handle a poor sales. This is how you handle a loss. This is how you handle a win. So to me, that's culture is, is the way we do things around here. So um, in terms of the environments I've been in, I've been very lucky. I've been extremely lucky. So in my previous life, I was with uh, – uh, my training is in sports science in – exercise physiology and it ended up being cycling physiology in actual fact track cycling physiology with a guy called charlie walsh when i first started with charlie uh australia was considered on the on the international stage just a laughing stock it was just a joke like um we'd walk into a stadium in germany for the world championship and you could nearly hear the sniggers in the stadium oh here come the good time australians you know good people uh fun people have a joke can't win. Um, natural fact, they might win occasionally just by luck, uh, and sometimes a bit of luck does just go your way. But in terms of being serial winners, no. Uh, they'll have a beer with you. Uh, they'll be great fun. They'll have a joke, uh, and they'll probably sell you their bike and their uniform at the end of the World Championship and, and they go back to Australia. Having been in that program after four years when we walked back into the, to the stadium in Germany, uh, you could smell the fear of the opposition because we're now coming and we had this reputation of 
these guys are now serious about what they're doing and uh, they are fierce competitors. So how did that change? Uh, now, at the time, I didn't know how it changed. I was actually living in that environment and it certainly wasn't because of me. But when I reflect back on it, it was because uh, a guy like Charlie Walsh had this vision and this roadmap about what was required to be successful at the international level. So I was lucky to, to start in a culture that was considered a laughing stock on the world stage. Four years later, I was, I was lucky to be in that, in that culture where it had changed in four years to be considered one of the best in the world. I started my AFL career in the Adelaide Football Club. So, and I was lucky to be involved with a guy called Malcolm Blight, um, who, when we were at, during that time at the Adelaide Football Club, we won back-to-back premierships in the AFL, which is very unusual to do that. So I was able to, to live in that environment. Um, then I went to, um, later on in my AFL career, I went to Melbourne and the Essendon Football Club, which was completely different, you know, quite toxic in a lot of ways. But it was a great experience to, to live in that environment for a period of time because you get to compare. If you only live in the, in the best environments, well, you think everyone's like that, you know, and it's not, it's not true. And so then just recently I, I go into an environment that's been, um, been created by Eddie Jones, uh, which is world-class again. What, I, what I'm alluding to here is that the environment for me gets back to leadership again. You see, when um, Charlie Walsh gets, gets appointed to be the head coach of Australian cycling because it's, it's bottomed out, and so people now decide we need a change here. And so when Charlie sits for the interview, to a certain extent, I mean, what people are asking, tell me, tell me what you think this environment's going to look like. And they, and they hear his answers and say, well, yeah, we, we wouldn't mind a bit of that. That's the same when Eddie Jones becomes head coach of England. Like this is, this is how I see the environment. Now you've got to respect the history as well. I think there's a bit in that about respecting the history of environments, but every environment that I've been in, either what I would consider to be world-class or as rock bottom as you can get, both of those have been tied to the leadership. I actually, that's why I want to know if I'm going to employ you in a, in a senior leadership role, I actually want to know what you think. I actually want you to paint the picture about a whole range of different situations that we spoke about just recently, you know, selection, management of staff, empowerment, leadership, captaincy, whatever, whatever, whatever. I actually want to know what that looks like. And then um, what happens, of course, is that you can, you can tell me what that looks like. But in the end, the real test is what you do and your capacity to, to drive it and, and uh, to reward it and to challenge it and to live it, basically. I'm sorry, it gets back to leadership again. There's no magic bullet. And so um, it's about you, you just become inquisitive about the roadmap that the person has in their head about success. And then you make a decision as an organisation whether you want that or not. Neil, I, it's a, the, the, the answer resonates very strongly from someone who's not performed or been in an elite sporting environment. Um, but your environment, Paul, would be the same, you see. So I know it's not totally the same because we spend most of our time training and perform on one day a week. Probably in your company, you spend most of your time performing each day with, you'd say, I haven't got time to train. So I understand it's not totally the same, 
But in terms of what we're talking about, you know, uh, standards, exceptionality, vision, how do you do things in your environment? How do you do things in uh, in the sporting environment? It's those concepts are the same, exactly the same. We can learn a lot from the corporate world, and the corporate world can learn a lot from the high performance world, the sporting world. No, I, I agree actually, and I think one of the areas that overlaps strongly, and I think it's an area actually where there's probably more energy in the corporate world is innovation. You, you had a reputation actually as being quite an innovative coach. You know, at Adelaide, you you famously introduced the idea of training harder in the middle of the season to prepare for the finals. And I think most teams are now doing that. But what stops more elite coaches and elite sporting organisations from being innovative? Leadership. You know, the, you talk about the Adelaide Football Club. Uh, I have this, I, I because of my background in sports science, I come into the Adelaide Football Club. I've seen this done before in cycling, okay? This, this capacity to work hard and then taper. I then, I pose that possibility to Malcolm Blight, who basically, not basically, he was the head coach at the time. So he's the decider on that. He doesn't say, um, he doesn't say to me, oh, I don't know anything about that, Craig. He, um, you just go and do it. No, 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 that's taking your hands off the wheel, Okay. He'll ask, he'll ask me some questions about, well, tell me more about this. What does it look like? Do you, uh, how's it going to affect our performance? Uh, what sort of workloads are involved? When are you going to do it? Um, so he, whilst he's not a, a sports scientist, like most of these elite coaches, they have enough basic knowledge to ask good questions. Because in the end, he's the decider. Because if it doesn't work, it's no good. Him saying, oh, well, Neil Craig did that. Okay, wasn't my fault. No, no, no. Well, you, you, you allowed, you allowed that to happen, Malcolm. So that's a leadership aspect, which means he's prepared to take some risks because there's a risk with innovation. So he get, he asks, he asks good questions. He gets the information he needs. He then puts it in, puts it into the whole picture, which he's involved with being a head coach, not just the, not just the conditioning side of things. And makes a decision that he's prepared to, uh, he's been convinced that this could actually be an advantage for us as an organisation. Uh, makes sense with the way it's going to be, um, you know, the way it's been planned and the way it will be instigated. Is, is there a risk with it? Yes, there is. There is some risk with it. Is the risk worth taking? Yes, it is. And so your best coaches, though, are, they're not risk adverse. They're not, they're not, they're not cowboys. But they understand that um, if you don't take risks, like you, you end up being a, an imitator. So you imitate people all the time, whereas your best coaches want to be innovators. There's something, there's something special about being the first to do things. Paul, I reckon, I reckon it's great. Keeps you ahead of the keeps you ahead of the curve because by the time someone imitates what you're doing, like you're doing the next thing on top of it, you've improved it. And so uh, that's one of the characteristics. Of your of your absolute best coaches, Eddie Jones is unbelievable in that area. Like his his uh, his uneasiness about not having something new to fool around with and experiment with to make us better, to make England better, uh, keeps him awake at night. Uh, and he's prepared to take some risks on it. Now, uh, don't always get it right, but they are prepared to take those risks. So that's that's what I would say is that um, and that would be one of the questions I'd want to know if I was interviewing for you as a head coach tell me about your philosophy on innovation you know I'd want to know that if it was important to me as an organization because that's part of your that's going to be part of our environment 
And then, of course, you know, you've got to recruit people who are up for the risk and are good thinkers and will challenge thinking and will bring new ideas. And then, um, then the vulnerability of an Eddie Jones that says, no, you can, uh, we can bring in a, a soccer coach. We can bring in a, a ice hockey coach. We can bring in uh, Rick Charlesworth. We can bring in anyone. If I've got some information to make our program maybe better, let's bring them in. Other young coaches and um, insecure coaches will say, no, 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 we don't want people in here. This is secret men's business. You know, we can't let them in. So we've, we've had, um, we've had opposition rugby coaches sit in on Eddie's coaches meetings because he wants to pick their brain about ways to do things better. So that's, that's how I see innovation. So important. So important. But once again, it's a philosophical decision you've got to make. I remember reading many years ago um, that you brought Jan Sterling in, I think, to the team after she'd oh. taken the, the, the team to the World Championships. And that was, at the time, you were there was some discussion around why. And I think that's, now that I've interviewed you today, I understand that your view on looking more broadly and being curious was a driver of that decision. Yeah, Jan Sterling. I mean, uh, I'd get Jan Sterling into any high-performance environment tomorrow. Lisa Alexander, she could step into a role, to, which I know. I've, I've, seen, I've seen Lisa. I know Lisa. I've seen her involvement. So it was about, um, you know, an AFL football up in the forward line. Uh, I wanted to know how uh, in basketball you set screens, you know, just little blocks here and there, um, which they do really well, a big part of their game in terms of basketball. So why wouldn't you get an expert from basketball to come in and coach your coaches about how to do that and see whether what you can take from that sport and add to AFL. And that's been one of the great things about AFL up until this point of time, Paul, I think is their willingness, their capacity to do it from a financial point of view. Uh, and I think it's why the games evolve so quickly is they, they are known for looking outside of their sport to get different ideas, new ideas, uh, fresh ideas, different ways, better, different and better ways of doing things. And I think it's been one of the great things of AFL. I just hope it hasn't been stifled now by, you know, the, this coronavirus situation where from an economical point of view, it's, it's going to have big implications on, on professional sport. I'd like to talk about the topic of resilience, um, if we could, Neil, because in, in preparing for today, I saw this quote in many articles where you say good things happen to people who keep showing up. Yeah. Personally, I think that's very, very true, but I'd like to ask you, what are some of the best methods you've found for helping athletes build resilience? Once again, I sort of go back to uh, the definition of it. Well, what's resilience? Immediately, most people think it's about how you handle some form of adversity or crisis. And that can be a loss, it can be a poor form, it can be a, an error on the pitch in front of 100,000 people. <laughs> it can be criticism in the, in the media. Uh, and it is that. It is part of that. But it's also being able to handle success. So you need to be resilient to better handle success. Because if you're not resilient, you be, you'll become very inconsistent. Because success seduces people. Uh, I think as human beings, we've evolved to, to seek the comfortable environment um our body is uh, from a physiological point of view is geared to bring it back to equilibrium doesn't like to be stressed 
So it's got all these internal mechanisms that if, if you start to overheat, get rid of the heat. And I think as humans, we tend to be like that anyway. Like we like to be comfortable. Whereas uh, your best high performance environments, Eddie, Eddie Jones, Rick Charlesworth, Charlie Walsh, they are very, very uncomfortable about being comfortable. In actual fact, they seek, they seek ways to keep things uncomfortable because when it's, that's when you really learn. Like you learn you, you, when you first learn to drive a car. Like it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Like you, 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 everything's uh, highlighted and you, you've got to push the, the accelerator down, you've got brakes and the indicators and whatever. Uh, eventually you get to a stage where you're quite comfortable. And if you want to get better, if you want to get better at that, you need to actually extend yourself. So you might be able to drive a car around uh, Prague all day, um, but if you want to be really uncomfortable, we'll put you in a Formula One. And so your skill set will have to increase enormously because you, you'll be totally uncomfortable again. And so this capacity to, to embrace the adversity, which, which is a form of training for you. For example, over my journey, I left home at 13, away from, well, I was away from my family, but I had to go from a country area into the city to go to school at 13 years of age. Now, when I look back on that, I had to do that, but that made me really uncomfortable, but I survived and I developed different, I, I developed skills much quicker than a lot of my, um, a lot of my mates who are at school living at home because I had to get myself organized in the morning to get, to, to get up had to get my own breakfast, had to walk to school, didn't get driven to school. Uh, I had to organize my own time. It's a whole range of things. So, all of a sudden, it develops this skill. I've spoken to you about when I was a head coach, you know, you're trying to be a head coach of an AFL team, and my youngest daughter was quite ill at the time. And so you, you, I remember driving up to the hospital at one stage, and we just lost this game, and, and you, put it in, you put it in perspective because you've got your young daughter in hospital, but you still have to deal with that and still coach because the game really didn't care that I had a sick daughter at that time. Um, so you, you learn you learn this skill of how to manage that situation. You got injuries, you got losing, you've got criticism, uh, you got all this these things. Now, if if you're in the mindset of being combative all the time in in the adverse situations, to me you lose the op- you don't see the opportunities that are involved. It's a bit like criticism when you're coaching. Okay, none of us like to be criticised in the public arena. Like it's I don't care who you are. You can become quite combative as a coach with that. And you can say, no, I'm not making any comment or I'm not going to be interviewed. Um, or you give one word answers, you know, you become, you're not a great advertisement for your football club. So eventually I got to a stage is where with any criticism, the first question I'd ask would be, is there any truth in it? I'd ask myself that. And if there's no truth in it, I, I developed a school where it's just, Dismiss it. Every now and again, though, you deep down you know internally, no, there's a bit of truth in that. Yeah. And so there's the capacity to reflect and to learn, to take something out of it. So that's when I was talking about the, the media can be a great accountability tool because they'll, they'll ask the questions, particularly if in the case of the media, which is huge in a high-performance sport. Like it's a big stakeholder. And so uh, you need to have a good skill set to be able to manage it and, and work with them. Uh, you can't, as a head coach, just dismiss it because it's uh, it's part of your role. An example here would be is that I identified 
three or four people in the media that worked in the AFL who's what I, what I called, I could actually, I could trust their criticism. So when they criticised the club I was at or they criticised my own individual performance as a coach, because of the, the history of it, I would actually say, is there any truth in it? Because I trust their criticism. So, all the, so you, get the, you get an opportunity to learn. So once again, it's this growth mindset. It's this capacity to keep calm and clear thinking. As I said to you before, the ultimate test, the ultimate test for you or for me in the leadership role is how do we react under the heat? And so in a lot of ways, you welcome this adversity to come your way because it's an opportunity to hone your skills to better manage it because it's a really important skill when you're in a senior leadership role because people look to you. All right? What are you going to do now? What's, what's Neil going to do now? What's Paul going to do now? Because they're looking for that leadership aspect. And so I think it's, I think it's you, you cannot be successful if you can't handle adversity. It's impossible. It's just not going to happen. So you need to be good at it. And therefore you need to embrace it and see it for what it is. I'm not saying it's pleasant, but it's, uh, it's, the, old, it's the old driving theory, Paul. You only learn... It's uh, you only learn new skills, you know, when uh, when there's a bit of heat on, when it's when it's uncomfortable and things go wrong. It's a fantastic answer, Neil. Thank you, thank you for sharing it. I would like to take a, a sidestep, actually. And your one of your early coaches, Robert Oti, he was talking about of you, and he said he doesn't forget people. He's very serious about you and caring for you, but. I'm very interested in finding the line with players because you can be too intimate with them and then you can also lose your ability to be dispassionate and make difficult decisions. How have you found that line and what advice would you give to others on finding their own line when it comes to being too close to players? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, Robert Odie, uh, who's no longer with us in actual fact, is, um, he died, a uh, very close friend of mine, he died uh, last year, and he was my first. He was my first coach when I started playing um, at the highest level in in Australian football. So he was a great mentor of mine right to the end. Uh, and he, he can talk about not forgetting people. Like he taught me that. <laughs> he taught me that that value. Because in, in the end, Paul, what else have you got? I mean, in your company, you've got to uh, you've actually got to get a result. Yeah. And it's the same in, in high-performance sport. We've got it in the end, at, at the level we deal at, it's about results. And that's, that's important. It's not at every level you play at, but at the level we deal at, it's about results. So what else have you got apart from people to do that? That's your, that's your greatest resource. And so you better, you better have a, a great skill set and understanding of human behavior. Um, so really what we are, uh, as coaches or and when in the leadership role but in, in coaching roles as well is that all we are is um uh we're behavioral scientists because you're working with people okay so the way you operate is completely different to me and you're you know and so i need to but i need to know you i read a, i read a, a i thought a great analogy the other day is that you know if i was if i was coming in and um coming to work for you as a direct report i'd actually want to get to know Oh, you're really, there'll be some some areas that you don't want me to come into, you know, and I would respect that. But I, I need to I need to be able to read your user's manual. 
you know, if there was a user manual about Paul, I'd actually want to be able to read that and find out about how, how you work, what makes you think and what your values are. Because that's important. Because in the end, you know, I'm working with you and we've got to get a performance here. And so, you know, we, we need to know each other. Now, do you forget people? I, I, don't, I don't remember everyone that I've coached and whatever. But you see, if you, if you ask any player uh, about a coach that you remember for a good reason, that's one of your best coaches, they'll better come up with a name like that. And if I ask them about a coach that they remember, you know, that was one of their really poor coaches, they'll better come up with a name. And, every, and when you ask them why, it'll be about the way they made them feel. Every time. It's about emotion. So your capacity to know people, to help people, and the bottom line is to care about people, okay? So the care factor is huge. Because if I know you care about me, I'll, I'll start to build some trust with you. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a tough conversation with me. It, can't, it doesn't mean that you won't dismiss me from my role. But if I, know, if I trust that you care about me, I'll go a long way to do you know, the best I can possibly do in, in the role situation. So this care factor is really important. I remember working one AFL club, we actually uh, we spoke to the playing group about how they, what they expected from the coaching group. Okay, so this is uh, elite performance. And we said, what do you expect from the coaching group? And the number one thing that came back from them, it wasn't about game plan. It wasn't about teach me how to kick. Um, wasn't about contracts. It wasn't about selection. The number one thing is that we just want you to care about us as coaches. We want you to care about us. Now, what does care about you? Care about you means um, I want you to be the best player you can possibly be and I'm going to be here to work with you and provide you with feedback and some maybe some strong feedback. That's a care factor. So if I really care about you, I'll put time into you and I'll be prepared to tell you the way it is. I care for Eddie Jones. Uh, I really care for Eddie. Therefore, if I really care for him, uh, if I have to have a, a conversation with him about, say, a behaviour which I think is not conducive to the performance that he wants of the team, I care enough to have that conversation with Eddie. If I didn't care about it, I wouldn't have it. Don't worry me, do what you like, Eddie. So the care factor is really important, and that's uh, and that's getting to know people. You know, so it's and we're all different. And the way that care factor between you and I, if we if we develop that relationship, and it takes time, Paul, and that's the other thing, it's time consuming, um, and it's easy not to do because of that. But at the relationship between you and I would be be different if uh, the relationship between Jim and myself. But there would be a relationship there, and it would be different because we'd work out what that relationship need to look like in terms of us to get the performance. Neil, I <coughs> I'd like to follow that that question up with one that, that may, that may be too close to home. I don't know, but I'll ask it anyway. You've been, you've worked in environments that have been ethically challenged, either the sports been ethically challenged or the club has been ethically challenged. And I think this is quite interesting because you've probably had more experience at it, uh, dealing with those environments or being near those environments than anyone we've spoken to. So I'd, I'd really like to, to ask you about what advice would you have for someone who's in an environment and they're feeling ethically challenged either by the team or the administration? Yeah. Okay. So I've been, I've been in one of those environments. I've been in more than one. Um, 
and that's why it's good. But it's good to have been in those because otherwise you have this perception that every environment's like the Adelaide Football Club <laughs> or like the English national rugby team. It's not. So first and foremost is the world's not perfect. And um, when I first started coaching, I, everything was black and white for me. Like it had to be perfect. Uh, and yet you're dealing with human beings, so there, there needs to be a degree of tolerance. I, I think what you're alluding to, though, is, uh, you know, where there's a, you know, is there a tipping point? So first and foremost, an understanding is I want to, with any of this sort of situation where it comes down to ethics and, uh, you know, maybe something you consider is not right, because uh, I'll just divert a little bit there because in leadership roles, um, the thing that challenges you the most is to make decisions that you think is are right. And that's what, that's what your followers want you to do is to make decisions that you believe are right decisions. And yet there's this, uh, this, these, there's political, there's safe, there's popular decisions that keep tapping you on the shoulder. No, no, make the political decision, make the popular one. Okay. Make the popular one, make the easy one. But it, part of your role and responsibility and accountability is to make the right one. You get into those situations and I try and put myself in other people's shoes to start with about why, why they are actually thinking that way and behaving that way. Just so that I, you know, maybe there's something I'm missing in my thought process. So I put my, I, I personally put myself through that uh, situation. Then if, uh, if I still think, no, I don't understand that, uh, or I do understand it, but I still don't agree with it. I'll, I'll make a, an endeavor to try and change people and change behavior and do what I consider to be the right thing. And that will either have a, a, an impact or it won't. I'll better change it to a certain extent or I won't better change it. Eventually it can get to the fact that, that uh, the environment's not for me. And that's okay. And that's okay. Because, see, the, the environment that I created, and we'll talk about, let's call it the culture that I created at the Adelaide Football Club, wasn't for everyone. And when I exited a couple of players for a certain situation, I remember this quite clearly at a press conference. I got asked the question that, you know, player A and B have left your club. They weren't enjoying your football. You know, they weren't enjoying their football at the Adelaide Football Club. What do you think about that? You know, because that's a big thing. You know, well, the players that don't enjoy the Adelaide Football Club. And I remember making the comment, well, no, that doesn't surprise me. With the, with the standards and behaviours that we have at this football club, and I'm, not, I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but they're right for this environment, for the standards and behaviours that we have and the way we expect people to act, I understand why player A and B wouldn't enjoy their football at this football club. So it's best that they leave. So they can go to, to another environment and find an environment where they do enjoy it because it's important for them to, to enjoy their football. But it won't be in this environment. So if you find yourself in those and you can't change it, uh, at some stage you might have to exit yourself out of that environment. And that's okay. That's okay. Because if otherwise you get into this area now of mental health and well-being where you can't perform at the level that you need to perform and so you have a responsibility either to change the environment to a level where you can operate and perform well or you exit yourself out. Don't stay in that environment if you can't change it because um, your performance will drop away 
and eventually you would probably get exited anyway. So the extension of that is, and I talk to young coaches about this who want senior roles, senior coaches' roles. Is that I'm going to go? I'm going to go, and uh, there's a job available at uh, a couple of clubs coming up. And I said, well, what, what? Tell me some of the questions you're going to ask. Tell me some of your interview questions that you're going to ask. I said, well, what do you mean interview questions? They're going to interview me. I said, no, you need to also interview them because you need to know the environment. You need to know what their the way they do things in their football club to the best of your ability. You know, and sometimes that's difficult because it's an interview and unless you're in there living it, particularly when things go wrong, which is your ultimate test, and we've spoken about that, you don't really know. But to the best of your ability, you need to know what environment you're putting yourself into uh, before you jump into it. So if I was going to come and work for you, I'd, I'd ask you a lot of questions. I mean, you'd certainly ask me a lot of questions because you're employing me, but um, in my own way, I would be interviewing you. And then I'd be trying to find out about the environment I'm going to maybe put myself into because if I'm going to do that, I want to better perform. So it's, it's, I don't know if that's answered your question, but it's tough working in an environment where ethically you're, you're not comfortable. It's easy for me at that stage because, you know, I'd been working for a long time. I didn't have a house mortgage, and, you know, and, and, and sometimes you, it's, it's not as easy just to exit yourself out, even from a financial point of view, you know, because you, but I understand that, but, it's it's a tough environment to be in i think the message of giving yourself permission to leave an environment that you're finding ethically challenged is a great piece of advice yeah you know just yeah. just it's okay to leave you don't have to fight to the very end to prove that that you can change and they can change i think it's wonderful That's advice right. yeah and i think the other thing is too is that um you know if you're in charge in a in a senior leadership role is not to try and make the environment for everyone, you know, which is what I alluded to with the Adelaide Football Club. Is I, I had a picture on my head in in um, you know my philosophical beliefs about standards and behaviours that I thought were conducive to to uh, to creating a winning environment. Um, and they and I was quite comfortable to know and to say to people, this is not for everyone, and I and I don't want to make it for everyone. Because if I try and make it for everyone, it'll be wishy-washy. So I was quite happy for it. I wasn't happy. Happy is not the word. I was disappointed that those two players left, but I understood why they left. And I understood why they, they couldn't enjoy their football with the way they wanted to think and behave in this environment because they had, that, that didn't suit them at all. So they needed to go. I might, uh, I might lighten the mood for a moment. Um, uh, you've, got, <laughs> <laughs> you've got... <laughs> Of course, this is a podcast and no one can see, but you're in, uh, you're in a room full of books. It looks like a great space to learn. And so I'd, I'd really like to know if, uh, if, a, if a young coach asked you, oh, Neil, what are a couple of resources I should really use and explore to help me with my coaching? What would you say to them? Um, I, think, I think mentors are, um, are really important. Paul and I... So I would, um, I would encourage them to get uh, mentors that they trusted uh, and people who've had a lot of experience in the sport that they work in, uh, not necessarily the sport, but in the sporting environment because it's, they can accelerate your learning. Right? They're often a good mentor through good questioning and listening and suggestions can uh, stop me from making an error that they made 
uh, which might set me back for 12 months. So all of a sudden my, my learning experience has been accelerated because of, with, with good, wise, you know, great wisdom from someone else, I don't have to make that error. So that makes sense to me to have those people around you, okay? So that would be the first thing. The other thing is that you've mentioned, uh, you know, my office here and um, the books. And I, I, I learned this by my, just by my association with what I considered some of the best coaches in the world that I've been exposed to, is that they're all great learners. They have this unbelievable appetite for information. And into what, in, in today's technology you know, around the world, like I'm talking to you now in Prague, so we can exchange ideas and have a conversation. So, you know, even just that. But I can, you know, when people write something, like it's, see a thought process. So I can go and read about that now. And it's unbelievable some of the, um, some of the information. In actual fact, it's information overload. And so it's a real skill now to know where to go. And it doesn't mean everything you read that you agree with. In actual fact, you should probably read it, you know, with a really questioning mind. Do I agree with that? And actually, I get really interested when I read something or talk to someone that has a different point of view to me. I say, this is oh, this is interesting. Tell me, tell me, tell me why you think that. Tell me a bit more about this thinking, you know, because it's completely different to what I think. I get really interested in that. And the other thing is, you got to be careful. You don't just fall into the trap of becoming an accumulator of knowledge. Like I think you've actually got to get out there and use it at some stage and try it out. That's the real, that's the real art of it. So, and I, you know, I'm starting to, to come across more and more people in the world who in terms of being a resource of where to go for information, they are unbelievable. But if you talk to them about, yeah, but tell me about the application of this information, they can't actually tell you about the application of it and the experience and the wisdom of it because they actually haven't done it. They're just accumulating it. So there's, there's this two levels of it. One is the knowledge that's there and being able to access it. Access it. And I think the real challenge and the excitement is I'm going to go and use this tomorrow. I'm going to try this out, you know, in, in the leadership meeting or in, in front of the media or uh, in, a, in a team meeting or in a staff meeting or, you know, I'm going to have this tough conversation. I've read this about feedback. That's the real challenge. That's why I still like to be able to get out on the grass and, and get into the, the application world. Neil, you've been very generous with your time today. I'd, I'd really just like to ask you one final question if I could. Yep. And, and it's in connection to a quote that I found. It goes back, it goes back 15, 16 years actually, but I'd like to just read it. It says, Craig points at the wall to make his point. In reality, in 100 years, I will be one of those bricks in the wall. That's really how insignificant you are in history but it's an important brick at the time because that brick in the wall is there is playing a role. So the question is, what's the legacy that you want to leave as a coach? Yeah, it's just an interesting one, Paul. That, I, mean, I remember that. And that was uh, towards the end of my tenure at the Adelaide Football Club. I remember talking about that uh, because that was, that was at a tough time. Things weren't going well at the club, as in the scoreboard. And so uh, with, in conjunction with the management, and it was a really healthy conversation over a period of time, uh, I made a decision to resign, you know, which I never wanted to do, but uh, I'd made a pact with the, uh, with the management of the Adelaide Football Club that if at any stage they didn't think I was the right person, they would come and talk to me about it and we would, we would end the relationship. And if at any stage I thought I wasn't the, I wasn't the best person, 
to coach the Adelaide Football Club, I would come and talk to them about it. Now, when I made, when we spoke about that, I just assumed it'd be them coming to me. But because of the situation, um, which probably don't, we don't need to talk about here on this, I got to a stage where I believe I wasn't the best person to coach the Adelaide Football Club, so I needed to resign. So when I, that's what I was talking about there is that at the time, you have this responsibility to, to the club to make it the best environment that you can possibly make it for, to enable people to be their best. And that, mean, that doesn't mean you give up at the first, you know, the first uh, sense of adversity or a loss or whatever. You know, we've been talking about the way you do things, which is culture. We've been talking about standards of behaviour. We're talking about uh, caring for people. We've been talking about enabling people. So I just think you have a, yeah, you know, when you, th- and that's probably my thinking as a coach. Not everyone thinks that way and that's okay. Um, but I think once again, you pull back on your thoughts about how you think about it. And I just think that uh, when I was talking about the brick and the wall, that that's part of the wall and that wall's building and it will continue to build. I just want to make sure that that particular brick, which was me at the time, had some substance to it. You know, didn't get salt damp around it and a bit crumbly or whatever, that it had some, had some substance to it so that when the next person comes along, there's, there's something to build on. So it's this old adage of can you leave it in a slightly better place than what you found it? And if you can do that, you know, in any aspect of your life, well, that's, that's how organisations and individuals evolve. So when, if I was working with you as a mentor, can I leave you with slightly better personal way you think, a little bit, just a little bit better today than you were yesterday? And that's how, that's how you evolve. So that's what I was talking about there. That's a sort of a legacy. My, I guess my thinking got really tested at the time. Do I resign here? Because that's, that's a big call to resign, you know, halfway through a season. Anyway, that was the decision I made. Neil Craig, it's been an honour to chat with you today. It's a real privilege for Jim and I, and we thank you very much for your time. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with Neil Craig. The key highlights for me were innovators have an uneasiness with not having something new to make their teams better. They're uncomfortable with being comfortable. The best high-performance coaches are curious. They think more broadly as to the types of resources they access to improve team performance. And a good test of leadership skills is how you react and how your performance is being viewed when under pressure. I hope you enjoyed it as much as Paul and I did. In our next episode, we'll be speaking to Joanne P. McCauley, or as she is called by her athletes, Coach P. I hate to break it to you, but I'm not crying. No, I'm not crying about this. This is not something to cry about. This is a suffering that's going to lead us to incredible things. And of course, at that moment, they probably thought, I don't think so. But I also told them, relevancy is earned. You know, you don't become relevant because you sign on to some great corporation or you wear Duke on the front of your shirt. You become relevant by action and by each team. And so somehow in there, the team figured out that we had to make ourselves relevant. And it was coming from great suffering. I mean, people questioning us. And of course, the coaches always get attacked. You know, you got to win basically every game or else, right? And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes.